Faithful few, good morning. I like it. I like it. Keep it coming. Keep it coming. Uh, if you will remain standing uh, for the reading of God's word, uh, and I, I talked about this at the beginning of the series as we kicked off Revelation, but I haven't mentioned it since, and I've forgotten, so I want to remember today. Uh, so much of Revelation is about seeing. You'll see that language show up throughout the entire book, and. In order to kind of assist us as we go through this book, usually whenever we have a scripture reading, we'll have it on the screen or we'll ask you to open a Bible in front of you. For this series, we, we actually would ask that you just kind of close your eyes and imagine what is actually being said from the text. So, uh, so I'm going to read our scripture reading from Revelation 2, starting in verse 8. If you want to close your eyes and imagine it with your mind's eye. It says this. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And I know the slander of those that say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Well, Father, we, we thank you for this time to be able to come together and to to sing to you, to worship, and in many ways this weekend to lament and to reflect everything that has gone on in our nation, not just this last week, but in the last few weeks, God. We thank you that you are a God that we can come to in times of confusion and anger, and that you have, every time we cry out to you, you never denounce that cry. You tell us to give it over to you. And so today, as we talk about something like suffering from this text, God, I, I pray that you, would, that you would help our hearts to run to you in every area that we feel pressed, in every trial that we are in or are afraid to be in at some point in the future. God, I pray that you would help our hearts to remain open to you. Father, I, I pray that you would help us to sense that you are trustworthy, even when we're suffering. And so, Father, would you, would you unite your power with my weak words and help us to, to trust you and to walk with you when we encounter suffering? We trust you for it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, like many of you, I'm sure, a dark cloud has hung over me this last week. Uh, when, when the news hit Tuesday afternoon of another shooting, Another list of victims, and list, this list containing mostly children, my stomach sank again. And all of this just a week or so after a shooting in Buffalo, and that just days within another shooting in California, the, the weight of these last few weeks has been heavy on all of us. As we've 
collectively watch the horror of evil or the consequences of an action play out with this problem that seems to plague our nation. In weeks like this, or rather months like this, awaken a lot within us, right? When any sort of tragedy hits, especially to this magnitude, the human spirit is struck deep down. And some sort of reaction, something in us begins to bubble up to the surface, and rightfully so. We should never be so dull and numb as to not be moved by tragedy. And these tragedies, like I said, they bubble up in us all sorts of reactions. But as I've reflected over the last week or so, there's one reaction that many of us share and know, and it's, it's this, the reaction of personal denial. When we see the type of headlines that we've seen over the last few weeks, we automatically begin to process all of this by removing the possibility of such tragedy from our own personal lives. We, we wouldn't say it this way, but we react to headlines, whatever sort of tragic headlines they are, with the instinct of this, not me. That, that, that won't happen to me. The headlines that we've seen over the last few weeks break into our normal lives, and all of a sudden, we are shaken. We are shaken, and we certainly shake for the tragedy itself. We grieve the pain and are angered over how it all went down, but we are also shaken because friends, we are all of a sudden reminded of the fragility of life and the threat of evil. And as soon as that happens, one of our automatic reactions is personal denial. Not me. It doesn't happen to, to people like me. Listen to this from Ernest Becker in his book, The Denial of Death. He says this. He says, I think taking life seriously means something like this. That whatever man does on this planet has to be done in the lived truth of the terror of creation, of the rumble of panic beneath everything. Ah, oh, that, that phrase at the end, the rumble of panic beneath everything. There is a quiet rumble of panic beneath all of our lives. And when tragedy goes public, that rumble begins to shake us and we react. We react to the rumble of panic beneath everything going on by doing all the work we need to in order to assure us that we don't, that we don't fit the profile, right? Anybody else do this when tragedy happens? That, that doesn't happen to people like me. Whatever sort of tragedy it is, I don't fit the profile. No, Joshua, you don't fit the profile of those who get cancer in their 30s. No, Joshua, you, you don't fit the profile of those who get shot in downtown because you wouldn't walk down that street at that time of day. We all react to the possibility of tragedy by assuring ourselves that we don't fit the profile. Our cholesterol isn't that high, right? I probably won't die early. Our lives are mostly comfortable in a safe neighborhood. And so we think we can assure ourselves that this type of thing, whatever tragedy it is, surely that doesn't happen to people like me. So we assure ourselves and we get back to making our lives more comfortable and more safe, but this is the equivalent, friends, of rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. There is some sort of tragedy that's going to happen, no matter how comfortable we make ourselves or how much personal responsibility we take for our health and our longevity. Some sort of pain 
exists out in the future that we do not know and that we cannot control. And accepting that reality is a key part of what it means to be able to live and function in a broken world. Like Ernest Becker said in that quote, taking life seriously means learning to live under the terror of creation. The denial of our personal future pain that in some way will come to us, the denial of that is a fantasy. Now, here's where I'm going with this. Because so many of us live under the denial of future pain, whenever tragedy does strike, or when suffering does invade our life, we simply don't know how to react. Our 21st century lives do not prepare us well to suffer. And so when suffering comes, we don't know what to do. And I believe, it's kind of the heavy part of my job, but I believe part of my job as your pastor is to prepare you to suffer, is to prepare you to handle and get through suffering. And I want to answer that part of my job faithfully. If suffering comes for us all, I want to be a helper in your preparation for suffering without throwing you into more panic, of course, but I want to prepare you well because here's the reality and the problem that I've been confronted with as I've thought through this sermon throughout this whole week. For many of us, if if I want to prepare you for suffering, here's one of the things that comes into my mind. Here's one of the reasons why I want to do that is because it seems as though when suffering comes into our lives, there is a group of people for whom suffering becomes this thing that makes God feel so much more real, that God becomes such a bigger refuge and comfort for our life that Suffering begins to deepen our character and move us forward, as painful as it is. But also, there is another group of people for whom suffering makes God feel way less real, way less there. Our character isn't deepened, but our character actually declines. I thought about that a lot this week, and the question in my mind, if both of those things seem to happen all the time, for one group, suffering actually gets them closer to God, for the other group, suffering actually pushes them away from God, what's the difference? What, what's, what's the difference between those two reactions? What, what happened or, or what is believed by people so as to produce two very different outcomes on the other side of suffering? And that's what I want to cover today. I want to walk through this passage, and I think we see a few truths that, that we need to hold on to in order to make it through suffering and not totally punt on your faith, honestly. There's a few things here that I think if we believe them, if we see them and hold on to them, as painful as they might be, we can actually be in that group of people for whom suffering makes God feel way more real, way more of a comfort, way more of a refuge. So let's, let's jump in. First, those who make it through suffering and come out on the other side with their faith in hand and closer to God recognize this truth. God's love for us does not always equal immediate rescue. Look back at the text with me, starting in verse eight. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation. 
I know your poverty. I know the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Now, if I had to sum up these verses, it would simply be this. Jesus says that he knows that they are going through it. He knows that their lives are incredibly pressed and in trial, but things are going to get worse. But keep going. That's what Jesus says. (laughs) That's a tough sentence for us to swallow. That Jesus knows what they're going through, but he still tells them it's going to get worse. That's hard for us to swallow. But don't don't miss in this text the expression of Jesus' love. Jesus starts off his message to this suffering church with something that we all want in our seasons of suffering. This sense of deep empathy. Jesus knows. We just fly right right by that. I know your tribulation. I know your slander. And we don't really see what Jesus is saying, that he knows what they're going through. He knows their tribulation. He knows that life is heavy right now for the church in Smyrna, that they are under trial and they feel pressed just by the reality of the lives that they wake up into every morning. He knows that the days are heavy before they even start. Jesus understands this. He, he knows their poverty. Not only is their life heavy, but they don't have what so many of us have, the, the means to numb ourselves from the pain, right? To their tribulation and heaviness is added the impossibility of sectioning themselves off from the reality of their pain by means of indulgence and pleasure. They don't have that. They have no ease upon which to rely, and Jesus feels that for them. Jesus expresses an empathy toward that suffering. And then even more, he knows that they are slandered and demeaned. He references Jews who are not really Jews who operate out of what he calls a a synagogue of Satan. What in the world does that mean? It's kind of our first weird thing in Revelation, right? Well, back then, the the synagogue was the center of, of Jewish daily life. And all of Jewish life revolved around the synagogue. And most often, the the synagogue was where people connected and were taught by rabbis. And yet, this synagogue is a synagogue of Satan, who is a father of lies. And so I think Jesus is pointing out here that the center of their communities, around which their whole life revolved, spoke lies about them. The synagogue, which would have been a place for them to connect with others and to learn about God, it has now become a place where lies are spread about this church and they are slandered. And so they're even more cut off from daily life. In other words, Jesus knows that they are systematically oppressed and persecuted. They are being kept from everything that would have made life normal. Jesus knows these things. Everything about their life that they would have pointed to and said, this sucks. Jesus was aware of it. He was not aloof. He was not unconcerned, but he knew what they were going through. He was paying attention to them in their suffering. Out of deep love and empathy, he recognizes their pain and doesn't dismiss it. And if we were to stop there, 
from that sentence, from that knowledge that Jesus has, from that love, you would expect rescue, right? Am I the only one who would expect a different ending? I mean, imagine being a member of the church in Smyrna, and this letter finally gets to you. It finally gets to you, and someone is up front, and they're reading out, out, out to you. you. You make it through the first little bit. You hear about the church in Ephesus, and then you know, oh, my church is next. My church is next, and, and he begins to read it and say that Jesus knows about your pain and about your tribulation, about your poverty, and, and you would expect, what's the resolution? What's this great Jesus who's the first and the last, who came back from the dead? What's his resolution going to be? Being on the edge of their seats, waiting to hear that resolution, and the message ends with this. It's about to get worse. The devil is about to use the systems and structures of Jewish life and the Roman government to deepen your persecution by throwing some of you into prison. An attentive expression of love and care that doesn't end with an immediate rescue. That that bothers us. That feels like a letdown which it should. Friends, it's okay to say that this seems like a letdown. It seems like a disappointment with no rescue in sight. It's okay to admit that, that when suffering lingers on and there's no immediate rescue in sight, our souls sink. It's okay to admit that, friend. I I know that disappointment for myself. I know that... There's all kinds of examples of suffering in each one of our lives, and we all go through it, but one of the hardest ones for me has not been my own personal suffering. One of the hardest ones to really process through and think about why does this keep happening was not my own suffering, but actually the suffering of my little sister. So my little sister, her name's Anna, she was a teen mom. She, She was 17. Uh, I remember she showed up to Courtney and I's wedding about nine years ago uh, with this dude that we didn't really like. <laughs> we didn't really approve of. Didn't really like that he came to our wedding. <laughs> and we knew this, we knew this guy was, was not the right pick for her, that she was worth so much more than what that relationship could have ever gotten her. But we never knew how, how, how much things would turn. She brings him to our wedding, and, and we you know, get married, go off our honeymoon, come back, and then just a few weeks later, I remember being at my parents' house and hearing my little sister cry in the bathroom. And I'm thinking, what, what's going on? You know, she's my little sister, she's dramatic, so, so I don't know, she probably lost her job again. You know, it seems to always happen. It's okay, you can laugh. Um, <laughs> and I remember going around, and my mom said, hey, you should go talk to your little sister. And, so I went in there, and she's like, you know, she's just on the floor crying, and she's 17 in high school. At that point, she was a junior, and she was like, Josh, I'm going to tell you this, but I'm pregnant. And I was like, what? <laughs> what? You, my little sister, who's 17, now just had everything about her life totally changed forever. And I, and I thought that that would, be, that would be the difficult part that that would be the part that we could get through, you know, like it'd be fine, this little boy would be an amazing gift, which he is, little Zane. But as things went on, and things with this guy progressed, 
Thankfully, my little sister found out more and more that this is not the guy that I want to be with. And so she, she has Zane. She leaves this dude. He's kind of still in their life a little bit, obviously, as the baby daddy, he's around a little bit. But at this point, he has another girlfriend who also has a kid who's about two years old. And friends, these, my nephew's uh, dad is now in prison for the rest of his life because this guy and then the girlfriend that he was with one night got high on some really bad stuff and that child ended up dying that night. And so my, I'm watching all this and I'm thinking, well, I, I thought the relief would come when, we had, when, when she had the baby and, and that would be the hardest part is we'd figure out her getting through high school and everything, but now the hardest part is that my nephew now his dad is in prison for the rest of his life because he killed someone, not just someone, but a child. I remember watching that and thinking, when is it going to stop? Like, like, when is there relief? When is there rescue? And I remember watching, gosh, Instagram was so hard for me because I remember watching all these other people, all these, like all of her friends that she was around and thinking, why not them? Why does my little sister have to be a teen mom who now has her baby daddies in jail? All these other women, they seem like they just, if I can speak honestly here, right? This is a safe place. They just throw themselves around. Why aren't they pregnant and my little sister is? God, we were a good middle-class family who went to church every Sunday. Why us? It's disappointing, friends, in times like that, when suffering lingers on and we don't get an immediate rescue, what in the world are we supposed to do? How do we process that disappointment? To go back to what I said near the beginning, so many of the people for whom suffering makes God feel less real, this is why. This is why. We get confused on why God isn't coming to the rescue. And so we punt on the whole thing. So what are, we, what are we supposed to do? What maybe should we do as we process what this church in Smyrna is going through? Going through suffering and it's only getting worse. What do we do? Well, I don't have time to give what's called a, a theodicy, which is a, a defense of God in the midst of suffering. I don't have time to do that. I would love to have coffee with you if this is a question that you really, really struggle with. I'd love to chat through that. But there are a couple things that I want to, to point out that will help us walk through suffering, I think, when it lingers on. And there's all kinds of other ones, of course, but I only have a certain amount of time and I had to choose these two, okay? And the first one is a little bit tough for us to hear. It's a little bit more of a confrontation, but the second one is more comforting. First, if we're gonna process suffering going on without rescue, one of the things that I believe we have to address is our fundamental understanding of who God is. There is a modern understanding of who God is and why he's there. In our modern world, and so therefore in us as well, there is the basic belief that God exists in order to be our accomplice in creating a good, comfortable, easy life. God and why he's there is, is oftentimes to the just imagination out on the street and oftentimes for us, he's just kind of boiled down to, to being there so that he can be in our service, that God exists 
in order to be our accomplice, that to the modern world, God is simply this really big hype man who's there in order to make us feel good and co-sign on everything that we do. Or what's even worse and even more damaging is this. Not only is God our accomplice who's supposed to work with us to have a good and easy life, God is actually in our debt and he owes us a comfortable, easy, good life. I mean, did you pick up on what I said as I was talking about my, my little sister? God, we were the good ones. We were a, a safe, middle-class family who went to church every single Sunday. Why not these other teenagers? Why my little sister? Why did this have to happen to us? You repay everything that we've been doing as a family, all the family values that we have, you repay that with this hardship? And if suffering comes into our life and we have the fundamental belief that God is our accomplice or that God is in our debt, then we won't make it very far with him, friends. A God who simply exists in order to serve you, in order to be your accomplice, in order to be the one who co-signs on everything you do, that is a God that will not be worshiped very long when suffering comes in. We will not be able to stick with him. Instead, we have to have a higher view of who God is, that he is certainly concerned with us. He's deeply concerned with our lived lives, as Jesus shows in this text. He is intimately aware of our pain, but we cannot let that begin to be translated into the view of God that he's simply there for our own therapeutic purposes. We have to have a bigger God, that he is not just our accomplice who works with us in order to create an easy and comfortable life. But second, the second one is more comforting, not so, com not so confrontational. Just because God doesn't exist in order to serve us, this doesn't mean that we should then have a scarcity mindset as if God doesn't actually care. Those two things can exist. God does not exist for me, yet he really cares about me. God is not my accomplice, but he's a really generous father. If we can have those two things, then we can begin to make it through. In order to make it through suffering, we have to see that God is not our accomplice, but we also have to see that despite him not being in our debt, he's already freely given way more than we could ever think to ask. Way more, friends. Yes, God is not our accomplice, but he is our generous father who in the end, withholds nothing that is good. He withholds nothing that is good. His existence is not for us, but his heart is toward us. That's amazing. Paolo, you just missed your shouting moment. His existence is not for us, but his heart is toward us. That his heart is one of generosity and care. His past actions inform our experience of present suffering. So when suffering does linger and it doesn't feel like there's a rescue coming anytime soon, we can still look at what he's already given and be assured that God is trustworthy. He is worth trusting. And Voskamp. 
in her book, 1,000 Gifts, a, a Dare to Live Fully Right Where You Are, who herself has been through much suffering, says this. God gave us Jesus. I want to read that again because can we just fly by it? God gave us Jesus. If God didn't withhold from us his very own son, will God withhold anything we need? If trust must be earned, hasn't God unequivocally earned our trust with the bark on the raw wounds, the thorns pressed into the brow, your name on the cracked lips? He's already given us the incomprehensible. So friends, as as suffering lingers and it doesn't seem like there's any rescue, the two realities that we really need to process and work through is that, you know, if this suffering that is going on is really pushing me away from God, maybe we need to address whether our view of God was a lot more about our own personal therapy than it was about the existence of God. But then also, we need to see the generosity of our Father who gave us Jesus Christ. And that's not an out. That's not like, oh, well, suffering is bad, but God gave you Jesus, right? He's pretty, he's kind. No, if we could understand the value of Jesus Christ, what God gave to us already, like she says there, the incomprehensible, that he would give us Christ Jesus. We can see the generosity of our Father's heart and begin to at least make it through suffering and not have it push us away from God. Now, I got, I got to move really quickly because I have two more points. Those who make it through suffering and are uh, for whom God is more real at the end of that suffering not only recognize that, that love doesn't always mean immediate rescue, but they also recognize that suffering often produces what would not otherwise be there. Look at what Jesus describes as the purpose of their suffering. In verse 10, he says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. So here, here we see that although their suffering is going on and doesn't seem like there's any rescue, that doesn't mean that it's meaningless, that there's actual meaning behind their suffering which alone Christianity in many ways can provide. Listen to this from Tim Keller in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. He says, Christianity teaches contra-fatalism. Suffering is overwhelming. It teaches contrary to Buddhism, suffering is real. Contra-karma, suffering is often unfair. But contra-secularism, suffering is meaningful. There is a purpose to it, and if faced rightly, it can drive us like a nail deep into the love of God, into more stability and spiritual power than we can imagine. Our modern world sees suffering as just a a storm to make it through. That's why he kind of goes through that list and talks about, well, Christianity views suffering here, contrary to Buddhism, contrary to this, but contrary to secularism, which so many of us live in, it says that it's meaningful, but our, our modern world doesn't really say that. It just is simply a storm for us to get through. Our modern world views suffering as this storm for us to just kind of huddle up and grit our teeth and, and wait for the storm to pass. But within Christianity, there are the resources to actually make suffering meaningful. And here, the, the meaning of their suffering is described as a testing of their faith. Their faith 
is being refined so as to be more holistically dependent on God and trusting of his character. That's why they're going through this. Within the Christian faith, all of suffering is able at some point to be attached to meaning. Oftentimes, as we're in the middle of suffering, that meaning is totally lost on us, right? Can I get an amen? Sometimes we don't understand, but that doesn't mean that that meaning is not there. As painful as it may be, it doesn't mean that there's nothing that's being worked in us. And that's often what we actually need in suffering, right? If we're going to make it through, we need to know that something is actually going on. Something is happening. We need to know that when everything around us seems to be dying, that something is coming alive within us, at least. That gives us endurance. And we all know that, right? I feel like, the mon- like we, we see so many things around like, oh, well, it's just a modern, uh, it's accepted reality that suffering makes us better, right? Eventually, we get, you know, suffering like kind of helps us be stronger, gives us more courage, you know? But even that is just a platitude. But if, if we take suffering and really see that it's creating something that we need, not just Oh, that's what it is, that so much of our suffering in the modern world, we see it as incidental. That it's something that, thankfully, will at one point make us more courageous, more faithful, more trusting, more generous, whatever. But it's incidental. It's not actually needed. But in the Christian worldview, not only do we see that suffering does something, but also that suffering is necessary in order to do that something. Does that make sense? And so we can take suffering and see that it's creating something that we need, that on the other side, we will be eventually, although with still pain often in our hearts, the wound never really gets healed, still on the other side, we can be grateful for what God did. I know that with my own personal journey with OCD, as I've shared all the time, I know the anxiety that caves in and makes life a terror, but I also know that in the last 14, 15 years of OCD, that today, even though I'm still very much in the middle of it, today I trust Jesus. Jesus is so much more sweet to me today than he ever would have been if I didn't have OCD. My brain wasn't broken, my heart would not be nearly as healed as it is today. My heart would not be nearly as trusting, and that doesn't mean I want to keep my OCD. I ask God to take it. (laughs) But I also recognize that it's done something in me that otherwise would not be there, and what it did get in me is a really good thing. So we can take suffering and see that it's meaningful, and it's actually creating something that we need. As Samuel Samuel Rutherford said, I love this. When I am in the cellar of affliction, I look for the Lord's choicest wines. That's what we need, friends. Whenever we are in the cellar of affliction, when things go wrong, we can process through the pain, we can cry out to God, but also we can begin to look around and think, what's the good wine that Jesus has for me here? Suffering is meaningful. And then finally, suffering will give way fully and forever. Those who make it through suffering recognize that one day this suffering will 
leave. Jesus' promise to these suffering Christians is that though many of them may face death, they will receive the crown of life. That they will not be touched by what he calls the, the second death. And I love this because what they receive at the end corresponds perfectly with the suffering that they endured. That though many of them may die for the name of Christ, they will then receive the crown of life. And not just life, but a crown. Remember, these people are slandered. These people are undignified in their community. And Jesus says, I will dignify you, not just with life in general, but with a crown of life to put on your head. Everything that you've suffered through, the reward at the end will correspond perfectly with. You see, the promise of Christianity is not just a replacement of suffering. It's not just that suffering goes away. The promise is not just that life will take the place of death or that joy will take the place of pain. But actually, the promise of Christianity is that every bit of pain we experience here will be in some way recapitulated, reframed, repurposed in order to add to the glory and to the joy that we experience in the end. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Great Divorce, talks about how the glory of God will be so strong at the end of all of this as to make suffering, what he says, work backwards so that it is repurposed and reframed into something that then adds into our joy. That's amazing, friends. Or we've heard that phrase from Tolkien and sometime in Sally Lloyd-Jones that God will make everything sad come untrue. Do you know what that means? That doesn't just mean that sadness won't be. It means that what was sad will no longer be truly sad, even back then, because it will add to our joy. It will come in and make our joy so much more full, so much more life-giving. So every, if we're going to make it through suffering, we have to recognize that suffering will one day fully and forever be gone. And every bit of joy that we have then will correspond to whatever suffering you walked through in this life and you made it through. Think about your own suffering. Right now or in your own personal story, What was it that made that suffering so painful? What was the emotion? Maybe what was the lie that was spoken over you? Something like that. Whatever it was, the core of that will be repurposed for the service of your joy. So you suffered through shame? You suffer through slander, being undignified, you get a crown. You get dignified with life. Has death been what so, for so many of us often, death has been the thing that stung us the most? Not only will we get life forever, but it will be such a life so as to make death un, just unthinkable, unable to bother us anymore. Whatever we are going through right now, that suffering will be taken, repurposed, reframed into our joy. That's, that's worth looking forward to in our suffering, friends. 
And so if we're gonna make it through suffering, if we come out on the other side and God is more real to us and our character is deepened and our love and trust for Jesus is deepened, we have to have these three things, friends. That love does not automatically mean rescue. The suffering often brings what otherwise it would not be there. And that suffering really will, really will one day be fully and forever gone. That's a great hope for us to look forward to. And it's a hope that for many of us, if you're a Christian, if you look back at Jesus, even his first words here, that he's the words, that he's the first and the last, the one who died and came to life, whatever hope we have, whatever hope has been prompted in your heart today can be strengthened by that reality, that it was Jesus Christ who died and came to life, that if God did not withhold his own son, he will not withhold anything that is in the end good for us. We can look back at God's past activity and his faithfulness and goodness there and have joy, at least have hope, and make it through. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that that you are a God who sees and cares, that there's nothing we go through or anything that we can be afraid of that will, be, that will in the end prove you unfaithful. God, you are forever faithful and trustworthy. And I pray for my friends here today. Many of them probably just live in life and things are okay right now but some of whom who are, who when I say the word suffering, their gut turns. Their nose begins to burn because they are walking through suffering and just wanna let out the tears of what they're feeling. I, I pray for them today, God, that you would be a comfort to them, that, that even as things linger on and pain continues, that that, that would never mean distance from you. Even if the rescue is far off, you never are, and you are near to the brokenhearted. You save the crushed in spirit, and I pray that you would give them a real life example of that today. Their hearts can come to you and trust you. So Father, on such a heavy topic like suffering, let us remember the suffering of your own son that was certainly purposeful certainly meaningful, that certainly brought about something that would not be there otherwise, our own salvation. He went through that, and because of that, we are safe with you, even when we question you. And he went through that so that he can empathize with us in our own suffering. Help us to run to your son, to trust what he's done and what he's been through as the source of our salvation and even in many ways, the, the balm for our suffering souls. So help us to see Jesus and trust him all the more. It's in his name that I ask these things. Amen. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching to a time of response. While we recognize it may be hard to capture that as you listen online, we encourage you to take a moment to reflect on and respond to what the Spirit might be telling you in response to what you've heard. 
For more resources and to find out how you can join with us on Gathering on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org. And as we say each week, Christ is all and we are his.